0: and welcome to the lecture podcast for English 102 at RBC in the spring semester of 2021. You should be able to find all the readings associated with this lecture and the slides, the PDF of the slides that go along with it, in your Canvas module. So today we're going to be talking about the elements that make up a critical conversation or a summary and response. Basically, how you interact with other texts as you produce texts of your own. And this is a very common form of academic writing. So your readings for today came from the textbook, They Say, I Say. And in order to get a really good in-depth overview of all of the concepts that we're gonna go over in brief today, and some that we don't, you wanna make sure that you've done these readings. Okay, so the thing that is essential about a critical conversation is that it is in fact a conversation, which means that you are interacting with the ideas of someone someone's else. So in the sense of this kind of academic writing, that conversation takes part, it takes the part of a textual exchange. You read what someone else has written, and then you craft a response around that. In your response, you want to be able to sum up or summarize what it is you're responding to successful summaries describe the content of the work being summarized while structuring the summary in a way that foregrounds uh, the way you're responding to it. So it's a balancing act in which you have to be as accurate as possible in representing the argument and ideas of the source that you're summarizing, but you also want to present it in a way that allows you to respond to it. So That means emphasizing the ideas and points within the essay or text, whatever kind of text it is, that you're responding to in your summary. So good tips for writing successful summaries. Put yourself in the shoes of the writers you're summarizing. Try to represent their main points the way they would. This is really important. Summaries need to be in good faith. They need to accurately represent the arguments, points, ideas of the original writers and not you, not you the summarizer. That part comes later, that's part of the response. But in order to have a decent, fair, interesting conversation, you need to be able to recount what the other person is saying. So whether or not you agree with it, you want your summary to be accurate. And a good way to try and make that quiz is to sort of put yourself in the author's, but how would they argue it? Try to channel that. Also, though, know where you're going. So kind of focus your summary in a way that fits your own agenda while being true to the material that you're summarizing. This really helps you to avoid the dreaded list summary, which is when you summarize something by just listing all the main ideas, points, etc., that you can think of with a sort of in the and then, also, next. That is less effective. The listing might give you a lot of ideas from the original work, but it doesn't quite tell you why they matter or where they're going. So when you summarize, you need to be accurate, you need to be comprehensive, and you need to have a sort of plan for responding that is built into the way that you summarize. So in order to have this conversation, this critical conversation, your first step is making sure that your reader uh, who may or may not have read the text you're responding to knows what that text says. So in order to do, and also kind of why you're interested in it. So that is where you sort of balance your summary. And there are some great examples in the chapter. I've put one on lecture slide four here. And this is working with David Senko's uh, don't blame the eater. And the example they give is say you're summarizing this article or this don't blame the eater because you want to argue something slightly different because your response to the original author is, I see this, I see your point differently where he blames the fast food companies, you the writer might want to blame parents. So textbook says, Suppose you want to argue it's parents, not fast food companies who are to blame for child children's obesity. To set up this argument, you will probably want to compose a summary that highlights what Zinzenko says about the fast food industry and parents. So you don't put words in the original author's mouth, but you do look for the material in their work that supports the reading that you want to play off of, right? So here we go. Here's the summary. In his article, Don't Blame the Eater, David Zinsenko blames the fast food industry for fueling today's so-called obesity epidemic, not only by failing to provide adequate weight warning labels on its high-calorie foods, but also by filling the nutritional void in children's lives left by their overtaxed working parents. With many parents working long hours and unable to supervise what their children eat, Zinko claims children today are easily victimized by the low-cost, calorie-laden foods that the fast food chains are all too eager to supply. When he was a young boy, for instance, and his single mother was away at work, he ate Taco Bell, McDonald's, and other chains at a regular basis and ended up overweight. Zinko's hope with that is that with the new spate of lawsuits against the food industry, other children with working parents will have healthier choices available to them, and they will not, like him, Become obese. Okay, so this is an accurate summary of the article. Mm -hmm. Article is available online if you're interested in reading it. It's an interesting read. Uh, But this is an accurate summary. And it also and you can see that in the way that the first lines work. Blames the fast food industry for fueling today's so-called obesity epidemic, not only by failing to provide adequate warning labels on its high-calorie foods, but also by filling the nutritional void in children's lives. So here, left by overtaxed parents. So here you have the original author's thesis and, a dev- and development of its claims. You can see in the response how this summary not only adequately summarizes the original argument, it sets up a platform for the response. So here's the response. In my view, however, it is the parents and not the food chains who are responsible for their children's obesity. While well, it's true that many of today's parents work long hours. There are still several things that parents can do to guarantee their children to eat healthy foods. So you can see how the first paragraph, the summary paragraph, is an adequate summary. An accurate summary, more than adequate summary, of the original article. You can see the argument of the original article, which very clearly is about culpability and fast food chains, and you can see the intercession, the the they say, the I say part of the conversation, the way the responding writer, the the um, student writer here, wants to take this take this sort of conversation now. Say. Yes, this is bad, but it's not the fast food company's fault; it's the parents. So you can see here an accurate summary, um, accurately sub, uh, describes, excuse me, describes the argument, kinds of evidence, etc., from the original work, and and here it's easy, it's platformed in such a way that the response makes sense and builds on what's already there. So in order to do this, you need to know what the other article is saying, the, original, the thing you're responding to is saying, and you need to have a response uh, built in to have an idea of what your response is going to be so that you can shape your summary to do justice to the original argument and also to sort of give you a jumping off platform for yours. Summary is a really useful tool. So is quoting. Uh, as you make your argument, as you interact in the response part, of your essay, you will want to use material from uh, your texts and from experience. We know that quotations are not as easy as they look, they're very powerful, uh, but they require work. So when you quote, uh, it, quoting provides your writing with credibility, so you're reproducing the words that you're responding to, so you're writing, and it allows you to analyze both content, what the author's saying, and form how they're saying it. So there's a lot of good to come from quotation. However, whenever you quote what they say, it always needs to be connected with what you say. Uh, there's a quote in your, in your book in chapter three, quotations are orphans, words that have been taken from their original context and that need to be integrated into their new textual surroundings. So don't expect quotations to do all this work on their own because that's not fair and it's not effective. In order to use quotations well, you need to choose quotations wisely uh, with an idea with an eye toward what they're doing in your argument. Don't just quote to show you've done the reading. don't just quote to take up space. Use quotes that actually contribute something to your argument and make sure that you signpost exactly how they're making that contribution. And the way you do that is you surround every major quotation with a frame explaining whose words they are, what they mean, and how they relate to your own analysis. The phrase the textbook uses for what happens when you don't frame quotations is the idea of the hit and run quotation. You have an example of how not to do this on slide eight. So this example, again, comes from the textbook. Uh, And at first they give you the version that doesn't work, the hit and run quotation, right? So here we go. Deborah Tannen writes about academia. Academics believe that, quote, the intellectual inquiry is a metaphorical battle. Following from that is is the second assumption that the best way to demonstrate intellectual prowess is to criticize, find fault, and attack, end quote. I agree with Tannen. Another point Tannen makes is that. So you can see here that this is a quotation that is orphaned uh, and that sort of hit, and we'll keep going with these metaphors, and that just sort of hits the reader. Like, there you go, here, quotation. No context, no explanation, just onto the, and no real development of the relationship between the quotations position and the essay author's position. I agree, great need to be more specific. Okay, so let's look at the better version. Deborah Tannen, a prominent linguistics professor, complains that academia is too combative. Rather than really listening to others, Tannen insists, academics habitually try to prove one another wrong. As Tannen herself puts it, we are all driven, quote, we are all driven by our ideological assumption that intellectual inquiry is a metaphorical battle, and that the best way to demonstrate intellectual prowess is to criticize, find fault, and attack, end quote. In short, Tannen objects that academic communication tends to be a competition for supremacy in which loftier values like truth and consensus get lost. See how much different this is. See how well the quotation is framed. We get context on who this person who's being quoted is, uh, what her qualifications are, and we get context on why this matters, we understand in more detail here, and not that much, more. you don't have that much more writing, but what you have is significant. The framing sets up uh, why this, what this means. Um, and you can see in the end, at, or at the end of the paragraph, after the quotation, the student writer has also sort of summarized, summed up again, the quotation. So she puts into sort of concise form, the essence of what she thinks this quotation proves. And then, and only then, she moves on to her interpret- her response. Tannen's observations ring true to me because I've often felt that the academic pieces I read for class are negative and focus on proving another theorist wrong rather than stating a truth. So here we go, right? Don't leave your quotes orphaned. Make sure that you provide context Framing. And if you can't do that, if you can't sort of make a case for why a particular quotation is in your essay, that's a really good sign that it probably shouldn't be there. When you respond to someone else's work, and in your essay, uh, your unit one essay, you will be right. Your, your critical conversation is summary and response. The response comes after the summary, and it's your perspective. Um, We've talked a little bit already about how that might work. We'll talk more about it. Uh, they Say, I Say suggests some interesting strategies and templates, and we'll gloss over a few here, but please make sure, again, that you're reading these chapters in detail. One of the most important things about crafting a good response is to state your position clearly and to do it early. So don't just launch directly into a mass of details. Uh, make sure that you take the time to state what your position on the thing that you're responding to is. You agree, do you disagree? Uh, use a direct, no nonsense, specific sentence or claim that spells out what your relationship to the thing that you're summarizing is, what, what kind of form your response is going to take. Again, your, go, your textbook goes over this in more detail but it suggests ways to respond. And all of these ways to respond uh, cover different perspectives, but invoke similar responsibilities in that you need to add something to the conversation beyond just yes or no, beyond just agree or disagree. If you disagree, you want to explain why. You think of this as a formula as no but why and what do what could we argue instead what does this evidence does this platform really show us so if you disagree you need to explain why you disagree and you want to contribute perhaps another way to a a better way to analyze whatever it is that your original author was talking about if you agree you want to go beyond simple agreement you need to either you need to make a contribution to the case or The way they phrase it in the book is agree with a difference. So agree with the author's conclusion, but perhaps not for exactly the same reason. Can you add new evidence? Can you sort of look at this from a different angle that gets us to the same place in a different way? Um, Just like disagreement, the emphasis here is on how you're contributing. What more can you add to this conversation? It's also possible for your response to be a combination of both here's what I think went well, here's what I think didn't go so well. Now, overall, uh, with most texts that we read, we tend to agree with parts of it and disagree with others, but there's an overall balance. We end up being sort of more persuaded or less persuaded uh, by the sort of sum of the author's argument. And for your essay, That's what you want. You want to think about which side of the balance you ultimately come down on. Persuasive, not persuasive. Why or why not? One of the most important things that you can do when you're having an academic conversation in writing as you so often will, is to make sure that you're marking your place in the conversation, and that you're also aware of other authors' place in the conversation, in the dialogue. And one of the easiest ways to do this, and this is chapter five, uh, is to pay very careful attention to the way language frames arguments. Your textbook calls these voice markers, which allow authors to relate multiple perspectives, um, as well as their relationship to those perspectives. So very small words, nevertheless give you very strong positions uh, between who's saying what and how they feel about it and on slide 13 we have an example from the book we are all middle class or so it would seem our national consciousness as shaped in large part by the media and our political leadership provides us with a picture of ourselves as a nation of prosperity and opportunity with an ever-expanding middle-class lifestyle as a result our class differences are muted and our collective character is homogenized. Yet class divisions are real and arguably the most significant factor in determining both our very being in the world and the nature of the society we live in. So on the slide, you can see that I have put a few words in orange and these are the voice markers. And you can see they don't take up a ton of space in the writing, but they give us a lot of information about the perspective. So if I say we are all middle class and then I say, or so it would seem. I've undermined that argument, right? Because if I say something seems a particular way, I'm implying that it really isn't. The rest of the, parag- the first paragraph goes on to talk about how um, media and political leadership provide us with a picture of ourselves. So you can see how that is framed as an external it's not, we, don't, we don't create these pictures for ourselves. They are given to us by these external forces. Uh, and the author argues, as a result of this, our class differences are muted and our collective character is homogenized. And you get a sense immediately in the next paragraph about how the author feels about those effects, about that kind of homogeny, right? Yet is a disagreeing word, right? It's a hold on this doesn't quite, if I say yet, I'm not agreeing, right? Yet class divisions are real and arguably the most significant factor. So this author is responding to a phenomena that he doesn't agree with, right? And you can tell that through these short, sweet, super important uh, voice markers that tell you what the relationship is between ideas and this speaker. So these get easier to see the more you look for them and they make your writing and your perspective and your argument clearer, the more effectively you use them. Okay, so we're gonna end this here. Try and keep it short and sweet. Make sure again, that you've done the readings. Uh, Just keep in mind guys, critical conversations are essential. They're a huge part of how academia works, doesn't matter what discipline you're in, the critical consensus, the critical dialogue is always ongoing. uh, And perhaps most importantly, they get easier with practice. So even if this doesn't feel like a lot of fun, or like it's particularly easy right now, uh, it gets better. The more you do it, the easier it gets. So hang in there. Let me know if you have any questions or concerns. And that's going to do it for us today.